Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawarong and the Wadawarong people of the Eastern Kulin Nation and we wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. We would also like to pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be listening. We're doing the proper, we're proper, proper, proper now. <laughs> we're real proper. We're real proper. <laughs> okay. Hello and welcome to Chicks 3, the podcast that is rewriting the history books to include the women that were written out of them. My name is Annie and that over there is Phoebe. Hello. It is me. <laughs> you always sound like you're coming in from like a, a, a tribe. Out of like space. Yeah, no, Hello. just Geelong. <laughs> Hello. It is me. It is I. Uh, it is I. Mm. It is I. Uh, here we are back again to do the thing, the telling the stories of the women that are, that are forgotten in the history books or sometimes they are included in the history books and the men just get it fucking wrong. Yeah, or they're just dickheads about it. They are. Yeah. So it's our job to set the record bloody straight. Mm. We're on season six. Uh, this is episode four. Go back and listen to the others. Go back and listen to all of them. I mean, there's six seasons there. Do yourself a favour. But maybe only start at season four because that's when Phoebe started. Yeah. No, shh. Phoebe's no, listening. Season when did you five. Start? Oh. oh, that's right. <laughs> season five. Whoops. Shout out to Evie that held the uh, fort down in the meantime. <laughs> So um, anything exciting happening this week? Oh, look, I actually just thought I've been doing some research and I thought I'd just tell you a little bit about this particular family to give you an idea about some of the things that I discover. Oh, yeah. So quite often people come to me and they've got absolutely no idea about certain members of the family or certain branches of the family and I had um, someone come to me and said oh don't know really anything about my dad's side we've got these you know there's these rumors these rumors and I always say to people there's generally an element some element of truth in a rumor like it's it has to have come from somewhere yes anyway it turns out this family they didn't know any of this family was really quite it went through a lot of tragedy. So the this is keep in mind this is we're talking early twentieth century. Yeah. Um, the father committed suicide, and his two teenage sons found him. Oh. Then the mother is a widow. She sends three of her sons off to war. Two of them don't return. One of them's killed oh. in action. One of them dies of wounds. The other one gets discharged because he's got varicose veins. Praise the Lord for varicose veins. That's oh all I can say. Really? Is that a, that was a thing to get? Okay. Yeah. The daughter attempts suicide and then admits herself into a facility. Yes. And <sighs> then it's just, it's really sad. It's that really sad. I mean, woman. I'm not saying that, you know, everything is really sad. And I'm sure they had happy times as well. It's just quite often it's the points in history that we can really thoroughly research. So let's say the war, the yeah. First World War, for instance, uh, that that have the most stories to tell as well and you sort of fill in bits. Of yeah, that's just tragic. And was that 
for a client of yours and you had to yeah. then relay that yeah. story, that information. Yeah. Oh, and it, um, it is heartbreaking because it's I get really attached to the people that I research. Yeah. So, you yes. know, I'd, I'd start to live their lives, et cetera. But they were very happy because they didn't know any of this and it sort of put – put things into perspective I think particularly for my client's grandmother who was no longer alive but they could understand her more oh absolutely so you know having uh what she had been through in her life yeah yeah so then yeah to maybe the person that she became um later on down the track yeah, that's a lot of trauma to deal mm, with. It's a lot. It's a lot. So, <sighs> you know, you've got the war, the Spanish flu hits, you've got the Great Depression, like the really big focal points in um yeah, in history, in that part of history. But anyway, she's had a good life now, well, there my you client. Go. So that's okay. So I've got a little book recommendation. <gasps> please, please recommend away. I'm reading it's called Wifedom. It's the story of George Orwell's wife, George Orwell, who wrote 1984, mm-hmm. um, well, amongst other amazing books. Yeah, and Animal Farm. Animal Farm. Yeah. Yes. Two his big ones. So, yeah, so his wife, Eileen, was an avid writer herself, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And Interesting. Interesting. And obviously her story has been pushed to the side and it's just a fascinating read and it's and it's written by a woman called Anna Funder or Funda F-U-N-D-E-R who is Australian and she writes this book through letters that Eileen Orwell wrote to her really good friend so she's taken the letters and then she's sort of created scenes around the letters so it's it's really good. It's a really good read. And if you like history and you like women's history and you like to hear stories about forgotten women in history, of course you do. That's why you're here. <laughs> yeah, I would I would highly recommend. Excellent. You're the second person that's recommended that actually to me. So Really? Um, I'm putting it in the to be read pile. Oh, fantastic. Yes. Great. So Do you have a historical fact for us today? I do. I do. I'm going to tell you a little bit about dance marathons. Woo! What? I know. I know. So during the Great Depression, dance marathons became quite popular. These (laughs) contests had started to grow in popularity during the prosperous 1920s in England and America. However, during the Great Depression, they developed into entertainment events when cash prizes, which could be the equivalent of a year's salary in some instances. Whoa. Yeah, huge. Um, were offered to the successful contestants. These events also provided the contestants and spectators with food, shelter, and the opportunity to win some much-needed money at a time when life was fairly grim. So they... Uh, could be quite gruelling, these competitions, which before the Depression-era competitions included a woman by the name of Gladys Lenz who danced for 19 hours straight and who was even punched in the jaw by her dancing partner. And I'm not really sure what happened there, so I can't right. speak to that. Whether like, it was an accident or just yes. a... <laughs> yeah, get back up, Gladys. Dance. <laughs> yeah. Uh, There was also another woman by the name of Alma Cummings who waltzed around a New York ballroom for 27 hours. 
Oh, my Lord. I know. Wowzers. So the later competitions included short food and toilet breaks as long as one of each of the couple remained on the dance floor. They also included brief napping breaks. Oh. Um, however, one of the partners had to remain on the dance floor. What had originally started as a fun competition during the 1920s soon turned into a promoter's dream where many saw they could capitalise and profit, particularly once the Great Depression made many desperate enough to go through precarious and gruelling circumstances at oh the chance no. to win money. Oh, no. Mm. So it could I've never heard of such a thing. I know. I know. So, you know, you'd start with your, like, if you ever think a country dance, a bit of fun, but, you know, became quite competitive. Mm. I was listening to one of my favourite podcasts, um, My Favourite Murder, and they were describing a, a an illness right back in the kind of Salem witches days where women would be overcome. Well, actually, I don't think it was just women. I think it was everybody would be overcome by dance and they couldn't stop themselves from dancing mm-hmm. and they it was like this absolute need to move their body and they would dance in the street and people were like dying from this illness they couldn't they couldn't quite work it out but it actually spread like through this town and people would start catching the dance the rhythm really got them they really got them thank you Gloria she knew she bloody knew so what was it did they have they like have oh, they look, determined now what it was? You know, was it like syphilis to the of the brain or something? It was something. That... Well, I think there was a few different theories, and um, my brain is not remembering them right mm-hmm, now. Mm-hmm. But um, there was one was that there was um, like a restless leg syndrome sort of oh, yes. situation that mm-hmm. caused them to have to want to move, like, and they needed to just you know, like kind of shake out the heebie-jeebies kind of vibe and, it, yeah, and that sort of then became quite an infliction. Mm, That happens to me when my watch tells me to get moving. Oh, and then Mm. you just get up and do a little jig. No, I just wave my arm around (laughs) because I'm usually (laughs) in the middle of something. (laughs) All right, let me tell you about an artiste that you may or may not have heard of. An artiste, okay. Mm. Nora Hayson was born in Harndorf, South Australia, in 1911. She was the fourth child of eight to German immigrant artist Hans Hayson and his wife Selma Bartels. Hans had immigrated from his native Germany to South Australia in the mid-1880s with his parents and siblings and soon after began attending school, where early indications of his artistic ability were noticed. Hans attended the School of Design at the Art Gallery of South Australia and then was fortunate enough to be sponsored by four businessmen to study art in Europe. He spent four years studying abroad and upon his return to South Australia in 1903 was awe-inspired by the profound impact the Australian light had on him and from then concentrated on Australian landscapes. You've got a bit of a South Australian theme going on. I do. Interesting. Interesting. The year following his return, he and Selma Bartels, one of his students, married. I would just like to say oh, okay. that there was only a year between them. Okay. So Thanks for that clarification. Yes, I wanted to clarify that. The couple went on to have eight children, five mm-hmm. daughters, two sons and one adopted daughter. It was Nora, their fourth child, that showed artistic talent from a young age and the only one to go on and pursue a career in painting. 
Hans earned his living by teaching and painting and sold his works to galleries and private buyers and was even lauded by Dame Nellie Melba and had his one-man exhibition in Melbourne opened by the then Prime Minister Alfred Deakin in 1908. When Nora was still a toddler, war broke out. Her father Hans, being German, was subjected to suspicion and insults which would have impacted Nora and her siblings as well, I would imagine. Of course. Ironically, Hans was a quiet man who loved Australia and was deeply opposed to war and violence. Nora and her siblings were raised on the sprawling property known as the Cedars in Harndorf, a house that had been purchased by her parents the year before she was born. The colonial-style villa had been built in the 1870s on 150 acres and was surrounded by towering trees and iconic landscapes, which were later captured by Hans in his paintings. Mm, Beautiful. I know. You would probably know some of his work as well if if you were to look that up. Okay. The idyllic home of the Hastings was well known and artists from far and wide would visit the family. Nora said in an interview later in her life that the family lived art, talked art, drank art and all of the visitors were artists. Oh, mm, quite arty. Some of the visitors included actors Laurence Olivier and Vivian Lee as well as Helen Keller and Anna Pavlova amongst other renowned artists. Australian Prime Minister Robert Menzies was a visitor was a visitor, as well as Dame Nellie Melba, who gifted Nora a large painting palette. Nora used this palette all her life and it even featured in several of her self-portraits. Wow. Nora showed an early aptitude for art and her early artistic education and training was done with her father who nurtured her talents. Both her parents championed her and her artistic pursuits. When Nora was 15 years old, she began studying at the School of Fine Arts in Adelaide where she received traditional academic training, learning to draw from plaster casts and live models. While studying, she also continued to paint at her home where she produced several self-portraits as well as a number of works inspired by the local landscape, including one named Old Gumtree, the Cedars, Harndorf, in about 1928. Mm, this was That's later. incredible. Yeah. She, that, that she was young. 15. Mm. She went to study fine arts and um, that, and even at that time too, where she, you know, a young girl being allowed mm. to go and study art. I mean, I guess art. They were we were kind of allowed to do art, weren't we? Yeah, it was a bit of a um, a pastime, I suppose. Like, yeah. let's say embroidery or that sort of thing. I think yeah. it it definitely would have helped her case that both of her parents were artists Artists, as well. Exactly, and they sound like they were pretty um, well respected. So this was later immortalised in her father's work. By the time Nora was 20, she had some of her paintings purchased by the State Galleries in New South Wales, South Australia and Queensland. Shit. I know. In 1930, Nora exhibited with the Society of Artists in Sydney, holding her first exhibition at the Royal South Australian Society of Arts in 1933, and where she exhibited a total of 62 paintings. Oh, my Lord. I know. So these had received both critical and commercial success. She was only 22 years old, and with the money she made from this exhibition, she was able to support herself for the next few years. Wow. Yeah, amazing. Uh, I just want to Google her art because I, I need to visually. Yes. There she is. Oh, oh wow. It's a bit Monet. Mm. With the colours. With the colours and the. The colours. Soft yeah. colours and the. Yeah. The, yeah, like, cause, I mean, I don't know anything about <laughs> art, but apparently. Yeah. 
After her first solo show, Nora accompanied her family on a trip to London for her father's art, where the family took in all of the works by Eurist finests and well-known artists. Nora stayed on in London after her family left to return home. She remained in Europe for the next few years until 1937, where she spent her time studying and painting. During her four years abroad, Nora studied at the Central School of Art in London and travelled to Paris and Italy. Her studies in London had all been self-funded due to her earlier success at her solo exhibition oh in South Australia. Goodness, that's know, incredible. During her time in Europe, she engaged in modern art and post-impressionism, which became pivotal in her approach to painting portraits. Whilst Nora was in London, she was no longer defined by her family and her father's name and even began signing her name as Nora H. When she began to send works home to be sold in Australia, her father believed it was Nora being absent-minded and completed her signature to read Nora Hasten. God, I'll just fix that for you. Exactly. You're just a bit forgetful. (laughs) (laughs) During Nora's time studying in London, her style also changed when she met artist Lucien Pissarro, who told her to do away with the earth colours, something that was also prevalent in her father's work. Upon her return to Australia, her father was unimpressed with her new style and use of colour emitting those brown tones. Mm. Despite their close relationship, Hans could never understand Nora's need for an identity separate from her famous artist father. Oh, God, come on, man. I know. Upon Nora's return to Australia after four years in Europe, she returned to her home, the Cedars, in Handorf. After some difficulty readjusting and living her life in the shadows of her famous father, Nora was encouraged by her mother, Selma, to move to Sydney to continue her art. In 1938, the year following her return to Australia, Nora entered two portraits into the Archibald Prize Awards. Oh, So the Archibald Prize is the oldest and most prestigious of Australia's art awards and was established in 1921 by the estate of John Feltham Archibald, an eccentric, ambitious, progressive and nationalist gentleman who aspired to be a journalist. John had also launched the Bulletin in 1880, which was a weekly news journal. John Archibald had become a relatively wealthy man who in his lifetime had come up against the law and money problems. At his death in 1919, he made a bequest to the trustees of the Art Gallery of New South Wales, which was one-tenth of his estate was to be used to establish an annual art prize to be judged by the trustees. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That's great. Mm. So it was pertinent in Archibald's wishes that the eligible portraits were judged by the trustees and not artists, art historians or anyone in the art sphere Mm -hmm. and that the portrait had to have been painted within 12 months leading up to the award. The Archibald Prize is a who's who of Australian culture and anyone from politicians to celebrities and sporting identities Mm. have been painted. Mm -hmm. Out of her two entries, Nora took away the prize for her portrait of Madame Alink Sherman, the French wife of the Dutch Consul General to Australia. Nora was the first woman to win the award and is still the youngest winner at 28 years old. Oh, wow. Go, Nora. The total prize money was, which I don't believe was discriminatory, I think it would have been the same for a man that it was for a woman, Mm -hmm. was £450, which is the equivalent of about $44,000 today. Shit. Yep. So just a few other stats about the Archibald. Uh, As of 2023, more than 6,000 works have been in the Archibald out of more than 34,000 entries. More than 1,500 artists have had their work in the Archibald and only around one-third of those are women. 27 Aboriginal artists have exhibited. 
only one third of the portraits are of women and 11 women have won the prize a total of 13 times. Okay. So technically 2023 was the 100th year because there was a few years that right. they missed okay. out on. Okay, yeah. So over its 100-year period. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Okay. Mm. Okay. <laughs> it's not great, is it? No. <laughs> After Nora took out the prize, her win garnered much press and the Sydney Sun newspaper headline read, Girl Makes History, Girl Artist Takes Archibald Prize. Girl. 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 The the article's first sentence mentions Nora in relation to a man's world and reads, Miss Nora Hayson, daughter of the famous Adelaide landscape painter Hans Hayson. Of course it does. Yes. The article continues on in a similar vein, detailing Hans's life and his accomplishments before it actually speaks to Nora's win and her talent. <sighs> Shocker, I know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In that same article, Nora responds to her history-making win by saying, why shouldn't a woman win the Archibald Prize anyway? After all, women have as much right as men at, at success. Bloody oath, Nora. Good on you, Nora. Nora also told the readers that she intended to buy more paints and canvases with her winnings. She also told the newspapers that I work every day and sometimes draw at night. This is the first prize I have won apart from a small award in Adelaide. So she's gone from, you know, she's exhibited, but yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. Incredible. And she's still, she was only 22. She was 28 at the time that she won um, the Archibald, but still. Yeah, she was 22 when she went overseas. Yes, That's right. Mm -hmm. Nora also said that she had always done portraiture as people struck her as good subjects or not in relation to colour and so on. When she ran out of models, she would often paint herself. Interestingly, Nora was not the only woman to contend for the Archibald that year. She was one of five who entered the prestigious award. The critic, Kenneth Wilkinson, who was not so enamoured by at least one of the other women's entries, noted that in the midst of these sober surroundings, Miss Hayson's portrait stands out in joyous style. It is not a masterpiece in the sense that the late George Lambert's character studies were masterpieces, but it contains many fine qualities. The hands have a tender fragility that depends on clever use of paint. The figure has a concentrated poise which accords with the oriental gown Madame Sherman is wearing. The reflected lights in the skin are many and complex. The red curtain is bold yet warm and the area of green at the left shimmers with lovely light. Oh, look at you go. Mm. (laughs) I know. I'm looking at that painting now. It's beautiful. It is. It's amazing. Wow. Nora's other entry was a portrait of a barrister. However, that fell short and the trustees were enamoured with the painting of Madame Sherman and it only took them an hour to decide on the winner. Later, Nora noted about their decision on awarding the portrait of a woman that they gave it to the woman because she looked so beautiful. All judges were men. Because she looked so beautiful. Yeah, that's right. There was lots of interest around the fact that the winner of the 1938 Archibald Prize was a woman and a young woman at that. Nora was also the first Archibald winner who was approached by the Australian Women's Weekly magazine to submit her favourite recipes. That's oh, relevant. Come mm. on, Women's mm. Weekly. Why don't you do a spread on her art? I Not know. Her bloody recipes. So the piece was titled Girl Painter Who Won Art Prize is Also a Good Cook, Mm. (laughs) which was published in an edition on the 4th of February 1939 and showed the award-winning artist peeling vegetables and describing her favourite meals as Hungarian goulash, duck with olive sauce and Chilean stuffed peppers. No, I bet she had an apron on as well. Probably. Oh. (laughs) 
<laughs> God. Oh, no. So after her monumental win, the Adelaide News also reported on Nora, writing that marriages beyond the ambit of Miss Hasten's plans, it would interfere with her paintings. Miss Hasten said that there was no reason whatever why women should not be as good painters as men. She went on to say that the difficulty is that they get married and are tied up to domestic life. I'm going to stick to painting. Yes, that's yes, do you know, yeah, and you know what's really that just reminded me of wifedom. They talk a bit about how men writers were so popular and prolific because they were afforded the the time to be able to write and you know while the women kind of looked after the house. Mm. So they, so that's why men were able because they had time. You need time to write books and you need time to make art. And so I love the fact that she's like if she does that, she knows that she's going to give up that precious time to make yeah, art. Absolutely. So Nora had seen that firsthand with her mother Selma, who had also been an artist when she and Hans had married. Her art was abandoned for domesticity, and Nora believed that at times she thought Selma had been bitter about giving away her artistry. Aside from the newspaper and magazine reports, it was unsurprising that there were some men who had a few things to say about Nora's win. I bet they bloody did. Mm. Come on, let's have it. Yeah, so the then 63-year-old artist and teacher Max Meldrum, who had also entered a painting in the competition, showed his bad-tempered, patronising and really rather pathetic feelings towards Nora's win. He declared in a Brisbane newspaper that if I were a woman, I would certainly prefer raising a healthy family to a career in art. Oh, fuck off. Mm -hmm. A great artist has to tread a lonely road. He needs all the manly qualities, courage, strength and endurance. I believe that such a life is unnatural and impossible for a woman. So after her win, Nora was commissioned to paint several portraits, something she actually quite hated. Regarding being beholden to a commissioned work, Nora stated that she would rather go and make roads than paint commissioned portraits. So she mm. she would paint portraits but not, you know, that someone else required, you know, paint yeah. One of these portraits was to be of Lionel Lindsay, which had been commissioned by Sir James McGregor. Both subject and patron had been Archibald judges. Nora worked at this for some time and then on the 18th of October 1943, with McGregor's support, Nora was appointed as the first woman to be appointed as an official war artist during the Second World War. Wow. Her initial task was to paint studio portraits portraits of the commanding officers of the women's auxiliary forces a far cry from the male war artists who were generally in the field with the forces as well as painting many portraits of women serving in the armed forces she also traveled to new guinea to record the activities of nurses in recaptured areas it was work she found frustrating as she couldn't do the work that she wanted to do because she didn't have the freedom to do it as she wasn't able to travel to the front to do her work like her male peers, which was due to danger but also because of the lack of facilities for women. Mm, mm, mm -hmm. During her time in New Guinea, she also became particularly interested in painting the New Guinea people as well as portraying the lighter side of war, something that she was criticised for by the head of the official war art scheme. Leaving New Guinea, Nora returned to Australia where she visited the army unit in the Sydney hospital and where she portrayed the activities of the blood bank. In May 1945, she was sent to Queensland to record the activities of the RAF nursing sisters who served on the medical evacuation flights. Nora was discharged from her post on the 8th of February 1946 and over that time she had completed more than 170 works of art during her appointment as a That's war incredible. artist. incredible. 
During her time in New Guinea, she also met Dr. Robert Black, a tropical disease specialist and pathologist who said who she said was her first love affair. Dr. Black was married with a child at the time and his wife refused to get a divorce. After the war, Nora and Robert lived together for a time in Sydney. And yes, Dr. Black was still married. Scandalous. Mm. The relationship and living arrangements flouted convention and scandalised her family and most likely his. Dr. Black divorced his wife in 1953 after he and Nora had been together for 10 years. The day following his divorce, he and Nora married. The couple never had children together, something Nora later regretted. Mm. Nora continued her art and the couple moved to a house with a large garden where she tended to her many cats. She later described herself as a general provider for animals and all the strays, which found their way into her garden. Mm-hmm. Nora accompanied her husband on his research trips to the Solomon Islands and New Guinea, as well as living for a time in the Pacific Islands. Much of this time inspired her and her time there later became subjects of her art. However, the marriage had not been conducive to Nora's art, which she later described as a period of work that was uneven. After 30 years together, 20 of those married, Nora and Robert's marriage ended when he left her for his young assistant. Oh, you know what they say, the lemon mm, and the spots on the things. That's right. Oh. In Nora's despair, she found survival because she had her painting and she believed that great emotional upheavals were good for her work. Yeah, like most artists. Mm. Nora continued to paint, however receded from public life, although she did continue to hold the odd exhibition, including a joint show with her father, Hans, in 1963. However, throughout the 1950s and 60s, much to her irritation, she continued to be defined by her father's art and reputation. The year before, her and Hans held their joint exhibition. Nora said, I don't know if I exist in my own right. The same year she aired her despair, Bernard Smith released his first edition of his book, Australian Painting, which effectively defined Australian art for a generation. Don't say it. Nora Hayson was not mentioned. No. The first woman to win the Archibald Prize and the first female official war artist had been omitted from the book. Oh, my goodness. I know. Then, during the 1970s and the new wave of feminism that was gripping Australia, Nora's star began to rise again. In 1975, an exhibition titled Australian Women Artists 100 Years showcased some of Nora's works and brought about a new appreciation and acknowledgement for Nora Hayson and her works in their own right. More exhibitions, large and small, would follow over the next few decades, including a retrospective in South Australia in 1985 and another in 1989 for the National Trust. The inclusion in the Australian War Memorials Exhibition on Women War Artists in 1994 and a curated exhibition at the National Library of Australia in the year 2000. Wow, God. How old is she at this point? She's in her 80s Yeah, by this okay. point. Yeah. yeah. She's lived a really long like, – this is – 50 something years after her yeah after, after her after her win yeah yeah 62 years mm. when lou klepek curated a retrospective of nora's life for the exhibition in the year 2000 for the national library she was 89 years old right there you go Nora said the exhibition was life-changing and said that I only just thought I'm a person, painter in my own right, since Lou Klepik discovered me and put on this retrospective show and produced the book. I'd never been published before. I was always haunted with being the talented daughter of the famous Hans Hayson. 
God, finally. I know. She feels she's getting recognition. At it's only taken. Fucking 89. Exactly. Jesus. In 1993, Nora was honoured by an Australian Council Award for Achievement in the Arts. In 1998, she was awarded an Order of Australia medal for her achievements as an artist and the significance of an enduring career. Nora died at the age of 92 years old in 2003, where she was still living in her home on Sydney's North Shore, where she had been for 50 years. Despite being well-renowned now and considered one of Australia's great portrait painters, it took 62 years for a painting by Nora Hayson to be hung in the in Australia's National Portrait Gallery. Oh, my God, I just got goosebumps. Mm. Oh, my lordy. And that is the story of Nora that Hayson. That was so good mm. that that is that's the you know if you if you google chickstery that's the that's the bloody story that is the like the epitome of what we do mm. what yeah, an extraordinary what, and i i've never i've never heard of her i'm not mm. i'm not big with artists or knowing artists but the same she came up in i think i was reading something and and her name popped up and yeah. so good so Amazing. good yeah, took good. all those years to be recognised properly. <sighs> Incredible. And such a big life, like the mm. art and then going to war and having that experience. Holy shit. I know. Um, she lived a big life. She lived a massive life. Well done. Good job. That was great. Thanking you. Well, I'm going to go and have a cup of tea and a lie down after that because yes. <laughs> I'm angry. I might get my paint by numbers out. <laughs> Inspired. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we'll be back next week with another amazing chickstery. Like, subscribe, rate, review, do all the things. Follow us on the gram. We'll be back next week. We Bye. will. Toodles. Bye.